This is Heartstock Radio, and I'm your host, Carol Murphy. Thanks so much for tuning in. Today, our guest is Vanessa Roanhorse. In just a moment, she will be with us and tell us all about what she is up to. Remember also that you can email us at heartstockradio at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook. This is Heartstock. Thanks for listening. This land was made for you and me As I went walking that ribbon of highway I saw the Hello, this is Heartstock Radio. I'm your host, Carol Murphy. Today, our guest is Vanessa Roanhorse, and she is the CEO of Roanhorse Consulting. Hi, Vanessa. Hi, how are you, Carol? It's great to be here. We're doing great. Um, I'm, I'm here in Montana. Where are you speaking with us from? Wonderful. I am here on Tiwa lands in Albuquerque, New Mexico, on a very 60-degree, warm, sunny, blue sky kind of day. So very happy um, to be in this place. Can you give our listeners a little intro here, what it is that you do at Roanhorse Consulting? Absolutely. Well, Yate, Vanessa Roanhorse Yenshin. I am a Dinah woman, a Navajo woman from the Navajo Nation, which is where I grew up and my family continues to still live. However, here in Albuquerque, I have a for-profit consulting company called Roan Horse Consulting. Uh, we've been around about five years. I believe we're coming up on our five year in a couple of weeks. We're an indigenous women-led think tank. Um, we work with unheralded communities, businesses and organizations and individuals specifically to achieve and aspire their self-determination. Um, we do this by forging communities of practice, strengthening indigenous valuation methods. We create equity through entrepreneurship and encourage economic empowerment from in, within. We are a power-building organization with the goals of helping to curate, move, and cultivate resources for those uh, pushed out of the economic systems and those doing some of the hardest and baddest work on the ground. Um, a lot of our work has been about designing in collaboration, wealth and power building efforts so that we can invest in our leaders, um, support more meaningful data collection that's informed by practices that center all people in the earth. And frankly, uh, so we can help build more thoughtful community initiatives and projects in um, places that values all life. So we're we're very excited. Um, we're a small team, but I like to say small but mighty. <laughs> I like that. So, <clears throat> kind of to to summarize on that, I just want to make sure: Do you work with? Is it like a personal life coaching that you do, or you work specifically with entrepreneurs? So. Um, it's interesting because we actually don't really do those two activities specifically. Our biggest challenge has been, um, one, we don't act like a consulting company. We are actually measure our success when we have worked ourselves effectively out of any project initiative and design. Um, however, our clients are pretty diverse. So a lot of what we do is we work what I call the interstitial, which is the in-between space. And our job is to work 
with those who are trying to create opportunity, access, and equity, whether it's around economic development initiatives. So, for example, um, a bus rapid transit initiative that happened here in Albuquerque, we helped the city of Albuquerque and the county as well as um, federal transportation develop a more meaningful process as this um, huge initiative was coming through to create community-based small business supports resources in a connected ecosystem, or it's developing and pushing at the opportunities around access to capital. So working with a credit union to launch a character-based lending program for microloans for businesses and community members that are immigrants, Native Americans, and or folks who oftentimes are unable to access capital because of the five C's of credit are unable to be met. We as well have done things like create systems to support a more meaningful census count here in the state of New Mexico so that the Native American vote or Native American count would actually represent who we have. And so that is a process of coordinating multiple systems, communities, as well as tribal nations to define why census matters. Uh, We're also currently incubating the first ever Indigenous Women's Investment Fund, which we hope will launch at the end of this year with a minimum raise of 10 million. We do a variety of these types of activities because of our interest in wanting to push, um, push forward into what we hope is the next economy that is not about businesses making money only, but about the whole person, whole community, whole earth. Um, So we do a ton of different things and it's very difficult for us to explain sometimes how we approach these, but it is very much systems change lens, change work through an indigenous lens. Mm. Sounds very interesting and exciting. Um, What led you to this work? What did you do before? Uh, Well, you know, one of my favorite things to share is that, I am a reluctant entrepreneur. Starting my own company was never on my radar, even something I thought I was capable of doing. Um, I have a very windy (laughs) employment background. I was an artist growing up and I went to school for specifically media arts, film and video. And with that, I had assumed I would become an experimental uh, filmmaker. However, in my time trying to get into the business of filmmaking and also finding myself doing a lot of editing for various small firms in California, it was really clear after about seven years that I wasn't going to do much with it. So that kind of led me on a windy path of, I worked in real estate and oversaw huge multi-story skyscraper buildings in downtown Chicago to, um, supporting banks, bank-like CEOs to craft like better libraries and networks, all the way to finally really finding a home in a nonprofit focused on environmental and climate change activities um, in across the, mid, the Midwest. That's really where I got my chops. And then I got married and had my first and only son And I realized I did not know how to raise a half Navajo, half German Irish boy in the middle of a city where he didn't have access to his culture and community. So we returned to the Southwest areas, moved to Albuquerque, where my twin sister lives. And um, 
as a result of my strange background, it was really difficult for me to find a job because even though I had raised multi-million dollars and done national initiatives, I still just on paper didn't have, I think, um, a traditional cohesive employment story. And so push came to come and we were living on credit cards in my sister's house and I launched Roan Horse Consulting. I had no intention of this becoming my career, nor had I had the intention of bringing on staff and employees. I, and all this to say is this story is not actually that unique. I feel like in my journey in starting this company and then realizing how hard it is as a brown indigenous woman to, to become a CEO, to find the resources, to grow a company, that this is a very common story, which is why in that journey, I was grateful to find other Indigenous women in which we then co-founded an organization called Native Women Lead, which is a fast-growing global organization focused on investing and lifting Indigenous women into positions of CEO and leadership. Can you talk a little bit about the roadblocks that you faced and their effect upon your newly founded enterprise? Absolutely. So... I think one of the biggest things that happened to me right at the beginning was, first of all, there are a ton of resources available to have to help small businesses get started. Solopreneurs, you know, there's classes, there's online, um, you know, support groups. The challenge, though, is the narrative around business for me was never just about making money. I truly believed And I, to this day, continue to believe it's possible for us to design companies that actually can make a profit, but our designs constantly have a reciprocity model built in so that we're returning that profit as some of that profit back to the people and the places we live, because that's part of my philosophy, but that's also part of my Navajo philosophy. And I didn't see that represented in the business community nor were I able to, was I able to find other mentors and in, uh, Indigenous women business owners out there sharing this story, finding that niche, and also access to what I would consider relevant resources to start a business. Like, yes, I need to know QuickBooks. Yes, I need to have a strong accounting system. Yes, it's good to know HR policy. But in all of that, how you design your business is about culture and values. And I just thought that was missing. And so that was a huge road, a roadblock for me was I couldn't see myself in other people because I didn't see myself in the world of business and decision making. The other issue I had was access to capital. Even after the first year in which we were in operation, I was in the black and I had secured more than enough contracts for the second year. And yet, even in that process, I was denied again and again and again because I didn't have what the banks wanted. What were some of the things that the banks uh, saw in your in your uh, resume that kept them from giving you money? I mean, I think, first of all, we were new to the area. And so we didn't have like a home or a lot of like collateral. So the lack of collateral was really a big barrier. Um, We, like I said, have been living on our credit card. So our credit score had kind of taken some hits over that first six months we were here. 
And um, while we weren't in a bad credit standing, we weren't like in the strongest credit standing. So those were two two things in which I know didn't play well for us in the strength. But I will add that me being a native indigenous woman caused for so much more due diligence than um, when my husband, who is a white German Irishman from Chicago, when they thought he was the primary business owner, they didn't ask the same questions. They didn't ask similar or they didn't ask anything around um, my relationship to my tribe. They didn't ask me uh, a direct question, which was, you know, you're, um, you have a young family. How will this play out for you? That's something that didn't happen for him. And so I'm a grown up. I understand how the world works, but I will say that was one of the most frustrating processes was that they wanted to give me a business loan only if my husband was part of it versus on my own. And my husband does not do this work. Uh, my husband is an artist and a teacher. And so it's just, it was those types of, of roadblocks, those type, types of larger, deeper systemic issues that I think are huge barriers for women to get into these, to become their own businesses. And particularly for Native women, walking into a bank takes a certain amount of strength and ability to put yourself into potentially harm's way. Because as Native Indigenous people, finance, commerce, and economy has been dangerous tools that have harmed us over and over again. And so as I work to think about how do we rebuild that relationship in which we remind ourselves that these are just tools, they are not who we are, they're not they're not how we define ourselves, yet they are tools. And so if we can reimagine how these tools could be wielded by folks not trying to harm, we can go back to a time in which Native Indigenous people in the United States always had economies of, of scale. And so those types of roadblocks, I think, has been what's fueled me to continue to want to put myself in what I would say are uncomfortable spaces quite often and um, in our own way, work to protect as well as be sitting at tables that we normally wouldn't be at. Because I do believe our community and a lot of communities that have been pushed out of the center, we are building incredible solutions and what they need is resources, networks, and capital. We're at about that halfway point So we're going to take a a brief music break here. And in just a moment, we will be back with Vanessa Roanhorse. This is Hardstock. Thanks for listening. This is Heartstock Radio. I'm Carol Murphy, your host, and Clark Grant is in the studio. Today we are speaking with Vanessa Roanhorse. 
Vanessa, you were just sharing with us some of the difficulties that you had accessing capital. And um, it was interesting that you commented these systems have been used historically in a negative way. Can you share a little bit more about that, how just walking into a bank and getting a loan can be traumatic? (laughs) Yeah, so I think walking into a bank and asking for a loan is traumatic for anybody. Like, I think you have to, you, you know, I think just that process. But I think there are people and communities that have actively been denied access to capital and denied the ability to build wealth and assets, as well as have not grown up seeing healthy relationships with cat with like money, it's even more difficult. So I think when I think about particular businesses, there's a statistic that Village Capital shared of probably five, six years ago, which is Currently in the United States, um, 83% of all entrepreneurs are unable to access formal financing. And formal financing is defined as like banking institutions, places in which you can have a savings and checking account. Because without those two things, it's really difficult to effectively run a company, particularly a company that can grow and scale. So we see that 83%, and this is all entrepreneurs, this isn't specific to gender or race, but all entrepreneurs are unable to access formal financing, then we have to recognize there's a major dysfunction in the financial sector. And and I think when we talk about the financial sector, the design of the sector itself is meant to also keep people out because it's a lot of code switching. There is a lot of language in finance that's actually not taught in schools. It's not taught in terms of our education on how economies are defined. Uh, We don't talk about the United States budget and how is a budget put together. And if we don't have that level of civics and understanding of finance, walking into a bank, if you don't, if you didn't get to go to school and have a business degree or an MBA, or you didn't have someone in your family or community who had strong financial management skills and you didn't grow up with it, Walking into bank is probably one of the most terrifying things. And then for indigenous people in the United States, for many of us, not only are we displaced from our ancestral lands, but these treaties that we were forced to sign ensured from day one that we would be unable to build wealth off of the land we were allowed to be on and have taxable income off of that land. That's a fundamental difference than any other place across the United States. So from the very get-go, beyond all the other things that happened to Native people, the function of land was completely taken away in terms of an actual economic viable pathway for our tribes to build and grow, but not only just the tribes, individuals. So how are you turning all this around with your enterprise? Well, I'm hopefully only one of many hundreds of organizations and enterprises that are having to do this work. Because as you can imagine, uh, during this great sort of reckoning of racial justice and understanding racial justice, and then because of COVID and what it's laid bare, 
so many of us, I think, are trying to figure out how do we link arms across these conversations, but also how are we pushing at the institutions of finance, philanthropy, uh, finance and philanthropy to actually recognize that so much of the wealth that's been created has been built off the backs of black and brown people. And what are they going to do in their solidarity to start to reframe how they're moving that, that capital that they've been able to become wealthy off of back to communities of color who've been harmed? And so some of our work is, is specifically about raising the alarm, raising the bell, but also working with philanthropic organizations that are willing to do the hard work to sort of say, here are pathways and, ways and mechanisms and opportunities in which you can reinvest. For example, the character-based lending initiative we're doing with a credit union, um, that's never really effectively been done well in the United States, period. We've seen these types of initiatives being done very well in developing countries, and it's not new. Rather, it's been around for quite a while, this idea of providing direct access to capital for folks on the ground, but not using the traditional five C's of credit, but really using relationships and community decision-making as a pathway to decide who gets the money. So that's what we're doing here. And we're hoping to utilize this learning and this process because we've moved, I think, close to a million dollars over the last couple of years um, in which the credit union has been the backbone partner. And what we're seeing are these borrowers who on paper would never be able to walk into a bank have been able to receive small microloans up to $10,000. And pre-COVID, we had 0% default. Post-COVID, I think we've had two defaults and they were extenuating situations. And I think what we're starting to say in our, my, my colloquial version of this is we have the receipts, which is these folks are investable. They are reliable and responsible and are working hard to pay these debt capital pieces back. What we need to do is redefine what risk is and recognize that we shouldn't be putting the whole onus on those who are the most vulnerable, but those who have the most, where does their reciprocity in this design of access to capital begin? And that's the conversation we're trying to hold. And that's the conversation we are hoping these individuals and these partners who are doing the hardest work, we lift their stories. And the does all of the the funding for your project and impact investing in individuals in your community, does that money come from the bank or do you have partners who have invested funds and and likewise are investing in the entrepreneurs? It's a good question because I think that question to me is about power. And the answer is yes. So we have the bank, so the credit union, we have um, impact investor investors or mission aligned investors, so philanthropic money, and our partners who are deciding who gets the money because of the communities they work with, they also put some money into this. So we collectively have designed this so that everyone has ownership in how this program's designed and who gets the money. And also, and really about this idea of power sharing. Roanhorse Consulting uses the concepts of power building because for us, power building is redistribution of leadership decision-making, as well as making sure that in that process of building those leaders and the opportunity for decision-making, that the power stays 
with those who need to be at the center of it. And so the Design with Capital, which is what it's called, the Character-Based Lending Initiative, that's the strategy we've used. And by having everyone be a part financially of the design, it ensures that we are holding one another accountable, but also that we're um, keeping the foundation and values aligned of why we started this initiative. Can you share with us a success story, um, maybe a someone who came to you and your organization for help and um, how you were able to change their trajectory? Well, I mean, I'll, I'll be honest. Like, I don't think we can ever claim anyone's success story. We are part of their journey. I will say that I am excited about some of our Native women borrowers who have taken on not only the capital, but also are engaging on all of the the new resources that we've been pushing out and um, highlighting is that since they began, and now there's a network, a community of Native women uh, CEOs and leaders that they can like lean into, as well as access capital through, we are now seeing more women getting into positions in which they're ready to pitch for larger tranches of investment. So anywhere from 50,000 to 300,000. And to me, that's a huge success story because, you know, five years ago, while I'm sure these conversations were happening, what we weren't seeing were more affordable patient types of capital being designed to invest in these businesses that wasn't on, that was that wasn't just venture capital or equity specific but rather are these long-term loans with integrated capital which means aligned with grants or um, tr- cash transfer um, opportunities now we're seeing them and i feel like as a success I can say that we are very much a part of that narrative shift, but also being able to show to impact investors and those interested in wanting to invest in our community members that it's never been a pipeline problem. It's never been a talent issue. It's just that it's about creating the right mechanisms to bring on these these talented folks, but also to create direct opportunities that make sense to them that doesn't continue to harm them, but rather helps them leapfrog and elevate what they're trying to build. And so that's the part I feel that's most successful is I don't remember seeing that five, six years ago, but now I can say our company and the company Native Women Lead are definitely at the center of this conversation with many other organizations that are focused on BIPOC opportunities. And it's really exciting. Um, we've got just about half a minute left here, and I'm hoping that we can share with our listeners some contact information. Sure thing. Um, well, you know, we have a website. It's uh, www.roanhorseconsulting.com. And um, we are always interested in hearing and learning, and you're welcome to follow on social media as well on Instagram, which is a uh, Roanhorse LLC and Twitter, uh, the Roanhorse. And it's been really exciting to talk to you today. Mm. Yes, I feel the same excitement. And this is um, really exciting that you were instituting some ways and means to reverse some of that harm that we've witnessed, that we've all witnessed for 
Women in general, and specifically women of color, thank you so much, Vanessa, for the work that you're doing and appreciate you sharing your story. Thank you so much. Mm -hmm. And to all our listeners, thanks again for tuning in. And we'll see you next week. This is Carol Murphy, your host. Peace. Heartstock Radio is a production of KBMF 102.5 Butte America Radio. Hear our programs every Friday at 5 p.m. Mountain Standard Time via live stream at butteamericaradio.org. As I went walking, I saw a sun.